Villas Grace Church, building relationships that make followers of Jesus. Know, grow, go. To know Him, to grow in Him, to go with Him. We are still in the middle of our sermon series. We are going verse by verse through the book of John. Right here at Villas Grace Church, we want to preach one book, one verse at a time. John, Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Lord, we just come before you after having sung songs, worshiping you. We now turn our attention to the proclamation of your word. We pray that your Holy Spirit convicts us of your truth. We also pray that your Holy Spirit continues to teach us hope, the hope that we have in a Savior, the hope that we have in the Messiah, Jesus. It is in His name that we pray. Amen. We've all heard the expression, judge, jury, and executioner. Now, let's define what that means to be the judge, jury, and executioner. Basically, it means this. It's anyone with full power to judge and punish others unilaterally. So, when we look at many governments around the globe, we we can assume, because of what we see, that they all operate in such a manner. Many governments around this globe operate as judge, jury, and executioner. These governments are imperial. Governments that do this have no accountability. And governments who do this are manifestly corrupt. And this is why our founding fathers in this country, when they framed the Constitution, they decided to structure our government with representatives. One that protects and preserves life, liberty, property in the pursuit of happiness. Now, some would say that we've deviated. In fact, some would actually provide examples from current events saying that we've actually deviated and now no longer have a representative government and we have a government that behaves as the judge, jury, and executioner. I'm not going to give you any specific examples. I will allow you to Utilize your imagination, but we've seen some real estate deals be in the news lately, haven't we? Where the government tends to act like the judge, jury, and executioner, actually in such a way that those who do business in certain areas of this fine country of ours are are actually crying foul. Things that normally are allowed to happen that are perfectly legal are now being deemed as illegal because there are certain individuals with power that has no accountability. They have too much of such, and therefore they become the judge, jury, and executioner. Governments, though, and individuals within governments acting as the judge, jury, and executioner is actually nothing new. So that should give us some courage and our hope. Because when we see these things happening presently, and we know that it's nothing new, 
we should understand that God's word, again, is the only thing that is true. God's word and the truth contained within his word is the only thing that has remained consistent from beginning until end. And I want to give you just a few examples of how we know that none of this behavior is new. Examples that lead us to believe that this is the same stuff that's just been going on since the beginning of time. And I want to give you two examples from two verses, actually, that we're going to be looking at this morning. They said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Brothers and sisters, I told you that this is nothing new. See, these are the words from the Jewish leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees to be exact. And they were acting like judge, jury, and executioners. And this is the reason why we've titled our sermon this morning precisely just that. Judge, jury, and executioners. Today we're going to be in John, like we've stated, we are in the 8th chapter of John. We are just beginning the 8th chapter. We're looking at verses 1 through 11 this morning, but we cannot forget that two weeks ago, Pastor Jared closed out chapter 7, and we heard from him, and we were encouraged in his sermon, Perspective versus Truth, where we were specifically encouraged in this notion right here, that sinful man will almost always choose his perspective over truth. Sinful man will almost always choose his own perspective over God's truth. And this is called choosing what we want to see. And when we do so, we actually miss out on the truth. Today we begin the 8th chapter in John, and in the first 11 verses, we could say something just like this. If you live in a glass house, you better not throw a stone. That's basically how we could sum up what we're seeing in the text today. Because living in a glass house and throwing stones is exactly what the Jewish leaders were all about. They didn't realize that they themselves lived in their own glass house. What we'll see today is really not about judgment. We're going to talk about judgment. It's in the title of our sermon, but it's not about judgment. What we're going to see today has everything to do, and you need to get this right out from the gate, from the outset. We have to get this right. It's not about judgment today. It's all about forgiveness. So let's get into this text and see just that. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple area, and all the people were coming to him, and he sat down and began teaching them. Now the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in the act of adultery, and after placing her in the center of the courtyard, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What then do you say? Now they were saying this to test him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him, but Jesus stooped down with his finger and wrote on the ground. When they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said to them, He who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her. 
And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Now when they heard this, they began leaving one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone, and the woman where she was in the center of the courtyard. And straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, where are they? Did no one condemn you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go. From now on, do not sin any longer. Amen. So as we look at these 11 verses and we want to formulate a main idea, it looks just like this and it's very simple. Jesus came to forgive sin, not judge the sinner. Jesus came to forgive sin, not judge the sinner. So let's go ahead and start off right here in verses 3 through 6. We just read in verse 2 that Jesus was teaching in the temple area. Now here in verse 3, the scribes and the Pharisees, as it said, interrupted his teaching. In fact, they did so by bringing a woman caught in the act of adultery. See, the scribes mentioned here in verse 3 we can think of them as lawyers. They acted like lawyers. They were skilled in interpreting the law. See, what's interesting, though, in this encounter is that the scribes were actually accompanied by the Pharisees. And what makes this interesting is that the Pharisees were known for their conservative view of God's Mosaic law. They observed the Mosaic law from a very conservative standpoint. So it's no wonder that they brought a woman caught in adultery to Jesus. You would think that this is actually a noble thing that they were doing. All throughout the Gospel of John, though, the Pharisees were very antagonistic towards Jesus. However, there was only one Pharisee that we've encountered so far in these first eight chapters of John that wasn't antagonistic towards Jesus. And we know from chapter 3 that that one person was Nicodemus. If you guys remember, Nicodemus came to Jesus at night. He's the only Pharisee up until this point that wasn't antagonistic towards Jesus. All other Pharisees were very antagonistic. And some of you might be wondering, why? Why is it that the Pharisees were so antagonistic towards Jesus. Really, it, it's really quite simple here. It has everything to do with Jesus' popularity amongst the people. We actually could say they were envious. They were jealous. We could even say that they felt threatened by Jesus. Therefore, it's obvious that they did not know Jesus as Messiah. Because if they did, they wouldn't be antagonistic. And they did not appreciate the fact that his popularity threatened their own influence over the people. And that's where they felt threatened. Because they realized, we have all the power, but now we're starting to lose some because this Jesus character has come along and he's starting to steal some of our thunder. Now, after having heard all of this, take notice of how they address Jesus. It's interesting they're antagonistic, they're envious, they feel threatened, they're jealous, they don't like Jesus, but how do they address him? Teacher. They call him teacher. He wasn't the Pharisee's teacher. He was the people's teacher. So we can gather that by 
them, the Pharisees, calling him teacher, what they were really doing was mocking Jesus. And they brought a woman caught in adultery, calling him teacher in a mocking fashion and then bringing a woman to him that was caught in adultery in order to make a mockery of him in front of the people in which he was popular. This was strategic. They knew exactly what it is that they were doing. And they did this by forcing him to declare a ruling. They were trying to put Jesus on the spot. Really, they were testing Jesus to see if he would rule just like them. Rule not as a judge, rule not as a jury, but as an executioner as well. Now, verse 6 clearly reveals their motives. What does it say? Now they were saying this to test him so that they might have grounds for accusing him. They did not need Jesus' ruling. They didn't really need a ruling from Jesus. After all, they were the ones with all this influence over the people. They were the judge, jury, and executioner up until this point. They simply did not want to lose their ability to act as such. They didn't want to lose that ability to act as judge, jury, and executioner over the people. Now, to the scribes and Pharisees, this was really truly an open and shut case. So we know that they were trying to entrap Jesus. And we know that it's an open and shut case from God's word itself because after all, again, the Pharisees were very conservative as it came to observing the Mosaic Law. So when we look at the Mosaic Law, we'll look at two verses right here. Let's look at Exodus 20.14 and Leviticus 20.10. And this is how we know that the Pharisees already knew that this, that this case was open and shut. Exodus 20.14 says, you shall not commit adultery. Pretty straightforward, right? And then in Leviticus 20.10, it says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Why did they really need Jesus? They didn't need Jesus. They wanted to make a mockery of Jesus in front of the people in which Jesus now was gaining influence over. Now, please take note of what I'm about ready to say because this is very important and this is something that we cannot get wrong. If we don't understand this for the rest of our time remaining this morning, then it's all for nothing. But we have to understand this. Never in Scripture, does Jesus ever condone adultery? Never. And what we're going to see here today, he's not condoning adultery. In fact, he actually expands upon the definition of adultery. That's what Jesus actually does. He broadens our understanding of adultery itself. And we know this from Matthew chapter 5, verse 28. Verse 28 says, But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery in, with her in his heart. Even last week when we went over Isaiah 12, or Isaiah 53, verses 1 through 12, we saw the same thing. Jesus doesn't look at the external, he looks at the internal. Jesus' teaching actually at this point is already beyond that of the scribes and Pharisees. He was not as concerned with the outward action of this adulterous couple as much as he was concerned with their inward motivation. And that 
inward motivation is the heart, as he says right here in Matthew 5, 28. Brothers and sisters, due to our own inherent sinfulness, due to our corrupt hearts, we all live in glass houses and should never throw stones. So let's go back to verses 3 through 6. See, we understand that the scribes and Pharisees were setting a trap. A trap they set because they only understood the outward action. And clearly neglected the inward heart. However, by judging Jesus' immediate response, he was not caught off guard. They didn't surprise Jesus. We see Jesus respond in two different ways. First, he responded by, it says right here, he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground. Now, with a disclaimer, there's nowhere in Scripture that tells us anything that he wrote. We have no idea what it is that he actually wrote, but all we do know is that he stooped down to the ground and wrote into the ground with his finger. Now, as we move on to verses 7 and 8, we see his secondary reaction, because in verse 7, Jesus says this. He says, He who is without sin among you, let him be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, remember what we said at the outset. Today is not about judgment. Today is about forgiveness. Jesus knows man's heart. Therefore, he knew no one was qualified to stone her for her sin of adultery. Now, let's make another observation from this text. Let's actually observe something that's not observable. Let's observe something that's not actually in the text here. See, the scribes and Pharisees brought an adulterous woman to Jesus, right? We see that in the text. What they did not bring was the adulterous man. We all know that it takes two to tango, right? So why didn't they bring the man? This further verifies their corrupt motives. This further verifies that they're trying to entrap Jesus. For all we know, which we don't know for sure, but for all we know, the scribes and Pharisees had already judged the man. They had already acted as judge, jury, and executioner with the man, but they were going to bring the woman to Jesus to see what he would do. The scribes and Pharisees quite clearly did not care about justice. The scribes and Pharisees did not care about mercy. And they clearly did not care about forgiveness. They only cared about God's law. As long as His law could be manipulated in order for them to be judge, jury, and executioner. Romans 12.2 tells us this, for the law brings about wrath. For the law brings about wrath. Our God is a holy God. We talked about mercy already. God's holiness spawns mercy. God's holiness spawns forgiveness. Every moral attribute of God comes from the fact that He is first and foremost holy. 
And as a holy God, he has a holy, righteous standard. So if his law brings about wrath and his holiness requires a holy, righteous standard, then how does God offer forgiveness for those who break his law? That's a fair question for all of us to ask because last time I checked, haven't we all broken his law? Aren't we all as guilty as this woman caught in adultery? Yes. So... How? How does God offer this forgiveness for those who have broken his law? Are you ready for this simple answer? Jesus. Jesus is how God offers forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, God's justice was satisfied in the person and work of Jesus. Jesus paid the penalty for our sin. It's by God's grace that we even have faith to begin with. And it's by faith in Jesus that we are saved. Like the adulterous woman, we've all broke God's law. We're not the judge. We're not the jury. We're not the executioners. No. In God's abundant mercy, we receive grace which leads to faith. And we know from John 12 verse 47, that Jesus didn't come to judge either. It's right here in his word. And we're going to get to the whole chapter in John of 12 sometime. Not sure when, but we're going to get there. But it says this, If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. Which is why, again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. All while still upholding God's law. Verses 9 through 11 is actually the first time that the woman was directly addressed. She wasn't even given a trial. This is the first time. This tells us that the whole encounter really had nothing to do with this adulterous woman. They didn't care about her. They didn't really care about God's law as it pertained to actually doling out justice. They only cared about God's law as it gave them power. The scribes and Pharisees only cared about entrapping Jesus in order to maintain their power over the people. Brothers and sisters, I believe it's important to note this. God's mercy, God's grace, and His forgiveness does not then give us license to sin. Actually, it's quite the opposite. God's mercy, God's grace, and His forgiveness are actually license for us to appreciate Jesus' sacrifice. And when we appreciate Jesus' sacrifice, we are motivated to repent. What do we see right there in verse 11? Right there, she said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. What does he go on to say? Go, go. From now on, do not sin any longer. That's mercy. That's forgiveness. That's only offered by the blood, through the blood of Jesus. So as Joe comes up and we close out this morning, this account of the adulterous woman 
really has nothing to do with adultery. It's about humanity's sinfulness. This account is all about forgiveness. Forgiveness from sin that's only offered by grace through faith in Jesus. I'd like to close with these words from one commentator. This commentator says this, Jesus' verdict, neither do I condemn, however, was not rendered as a simple acquittal or a non-commendation. The verdict was in fact a strict charge for her to live from this point on very differently, to sin no more. The liberating work of Jesus always has demanded the transformation of life, the turning away from sin, a.k.a. repentance. And I can't say this enough. We repent once to be saved, and then we spend the rest of this life repenting daily. We don't keep repenting to maintain our salvation. That was already done when we gave our life over to Christ. But we learn how to repent and turn away from our sin over and over again. And as the body of believers, we can encourage each other to do so. Brothers and sisters, with this being said, what we should take away from this account for us to apply to our lives is to do exactly what these words say from this commentator. We should be motivated to live differently. Live differently every day. So let's make a practice of turning away from our sin. Because after all, what do we all live in? We all live in a glass house. Therefore, we better not be throwing stones. And this is the exact reason why our main idea said this this morning. Jesus came to forgive sin, not judge the sinner. Let's pray. Lord, we are thankful for your word. We are thankful for the guiding light that your word is in our lives. We want to continue to be a church that yields to your spirit as he guides us and carries us to go and share the good news of the work of Jesus. Use us to do just that. We pray all of this in his name because he has made it possible. Amen. Thank you for joining us today. For more information, look us up on our website, www.villasgrace.com or drop us a line via email, connect at villasgrace.com.